Kultur. 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 Welcome to the podcast Kulturstammtisch. My name is Eric Facon. A podcast with a German name that calls for some explanation. This podcast started its life as a broadcast on SRF, the Swiss National Radio, in 2008. It ran until the beginning of 2019. After a break of a year, the participants and I decided to go on as an independent podcast. Same concept, same people, same name. And that name, Kulturstammtisch, tells you what this podcast is all about. So what is a Kulturstammtisch? A Stammtisch is a special table in a bar, a pub or a restaurant, a meeting place for those customers who like to sit down with a beer and discuss matters, political, social or cultural with their friends or even passing acquaintances. Think maybe of the Forum in ancient Rome, think 18th century literary salons in France or think the Baobab tree in Western Africa. Think any place where people meet and sit down to talk, think, discuss and debate. And our theme is cultural. So here we are, a group of 15 people who love talking about culture, culture in the broadest sense that we can think of, anything from things hanging in museums or contained between two book covers to time management and fine wines, anything that defines our lives and our societies. And on to our first theme, Bob Dylan's latest album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. We've discussed this album before, recently in German, And if you understand both languages, you'll notice that we won't be repeating the same conversation. We've had a month more to absorb the work called Rough and Rowdy Ways. And here are my two guests. First of all, Marcy Goldberg, film historian and cultural critic from Canada, but based in Switzerland. And then we have Hank Schitzo, who is a recording artist, musician, guitarist, singer, songwriter from Switzerland and also based in Switzerland. So it's been a long wait for everyone in the Dylan world, for everyone who admires the work of the singer-songwriter. Was it worth the wait, Marcy Goldberg? Well, I have to admit that I uh, didn't know that Dylan was preparing a new album, so I wasn't sort of impatiently waiting for it. It sort of came as a surprise um, when he launched uh, Murder Most Foul as a 17-minute video on YouTube. That was kind of how I discovered it. Um, and as to the question of whether I, how, do, do I think it's good? Yes, I think it's good. Um, <laughs> do I think it's his best work of all time or even his best work of the last um, 20 years? No, but I think there's a lot to talk about there. Sure, which we'll do in the following minutes, half hour or so. Hang Shitzo, how was it for you? Worth the wait? Well, the short answer is yes, and uh, I, I could give you like a 30-minute answer. I I, um, I adore this album. I I think it's one of his strongest works uh, of his whole career, and that's saying so something. And I, um, yeah, I, I love all of it, and, and we, we've had now more time to get into it and like really live with this music, with, with these songs, and I... Uh, I, I'm a fan and I've been waiting for this a long time and um, it surprised me. I didn't think that he would come up with something like this. An album that was released after a career of um, about 50 years, almost 60 years. Uh, unbelievable. Anyways, um, so let's start. Can I ask a question just because I just said that I didn't think it was his greatest work of all time and Hank thinks that it is. 
one one of his one greatest of his, albums. Yeah. Can you say like in one sentence? Why? What's so great? Yeah. <laughs> because I, because I think it's it's something like a culmination of of everything that he did without repeating himself. It's like distilled uh, like this enormous career with with so many aspects and he found a way that to the listener seems like almost effortless to condense this into this album which where i think that every note and every word and every syllable everything is exactly where it should be and that's something as as so someone I'm, I'm making records myself, and I know how difficult mm. it is, and how and how much work this is, and that's why to me this is a, a true masterpiece. So we've uh, we're dealing with ten new songs, and the first one, as Marcy mentioned before, is a very long track, 17 minutes long. It's a spoken word piece if I may say so. Um, it's like a, a, a personal version or history starting in the 60s with the murder of John F. Kennedy, the American president. That was in November 1963. Well, what did you make of that when you first heard it, Marcy? Well, when I first heard it, I wanted to listen to it as a song. I wanted to listen to it as a piece of music, sort of the way that you're doing something and you have music in the background and you kind of sort of pay attention to it on a more visceral level without, you know, being too intellectual about it. And I found that it worked very well musically. It's not, um, it, it, it's a bit monotonous. It has a certain kind of repetition, but there's something very nice about that. And, uh, you know, he, Dylan always experiments with the, the quality of his voice and the tone of his voice and the, the way that he sings or doesn't sing. And, I, I liked um, I liked the sound of it just acoustically, but then as you listen to it, even whether you're trying to pay attention or not, as time goes on, you kind of start noticing that the lyrics are extremely disturbing in a lot of ways. You know, you're being lulled along by this nice rhythm and this melody, and then you hear him saying they mutilated his body and took out his brain, and you know, describing in all gory detail the, the death of John F. Kennedy, and that's when you realize that the the music, this kind of lullaby type music, is kind of a trick to lull you into it. But in fact, Dylan wants to disturb you and he wants to um, make you think about uh, American history in a, in a different way and that he's actually kind of angry and upset about things in a way that you might not realize if you only listen to the, the quality of his voice. Um, one thing I have to admit that kind of bothered me about Murder Most Foul is that we are living in a time where we have a really big problem with conspiracy theories and people who believe in conspiracy theories and murder and most foul one, you think. lends itself to yeah. that <laughs> mindset, even to the point of people saying, and this is real, I didn't make this up, the song is 17 minutes long. And Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet. And oh. we all know that there's this QAnon movement. So like there's people kind of like Dylan always provides a lot of material for the Dylanologists to interpret and maybe overinterpret. But in this case, he also provided material that's very fertile for the for the conspiracists. And even in, in discussing the murder of JFK in the song, he makes it sound like, you know, this is the rumor that people have been trying to put to rest since 1963, you know, that it was one man alone, crazy guy wanted to kill Kennedy. And, you know, that there's all these rumors that he was killed by a cabal of people mm -hmm. for certain reasons. Conspiracy and there's a mafia politicians, etc. Et right. Yeah. I mean, the, the expression, the, the phrase conspiracy theory was, was invented based on the, you know, all the theories that came out after the, the shooting of John F. Kennedy. And so I'm not sure whether Dylan has done our culture a favor 
in terms of going in that direction. But, you know, that's a question that goes off from the, you know, the aspect of the, the musical artistry. Well, let's, but do you really, yeah. th- but I mean, it's, it's not his job, right? To, if, if that's what he wants to say and what he has to say, and I think what he says very, very well, because what, what he's been doing for decades now is th- th- he eliminates the, um, th- different time frames and yesterday is now and now is tomorrow and it's not really important because that's one of the best things poetry can do and he's i think stream of consciousness or whatever but he's he's just maybe that stuck in his mind for a long time and he just did it and i think it's not his job to worry about what he provides crazy people with you know to (laughs) to to expand on 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 theories you know well it's still it does bother me though that someone like dylan who i consider to be very intelligent and actually an amazing analyst of american culture and history that he would sort of flirt with the john f kennedy conspiracy idea but it's true i mean it's interesting at the time when kennedy died um dylan was just starting out in his career Mm -hmm. and at that time he was very obsessed with american history of the depression and of the 19th century and in his autobiography Mm -hmm. chronicles volume one from 2004 he talked talks about going to the library and reading newspapers, you know, from the mm-hmm. 1890s and reading about mm-hmm. murders and crimes mm-hmm. and deaths and stories. And, and you know, he was also very obsessed with Woody Guthrie and with the whole kind of Dust Bowl depression era. So in the 60s, around the time of Kennedy's death, he was singing about those things and using them as material for his songs. And now um, in the era of Donald Trump, he has chosen to go back and revisit, you know, the early 1960s. And so that to me is actually super interesting and very symptomatic of Dylan's genius of kind of using history as a way to comment on the present and so on. But yeah, I, I could have mm. done without the, the conspiracist aspect because I think we have enough of that. Okay, let's close that parenthesis. But um, there was something that I'd like to, um, you know, like think about a bit further. Um, is this idea of, of, of the release date. I mean, he's coming up with something that seems to revert back 50 years or six to 1963. So it's um, a, a long period of time and he seems to connect this with current events. Um, why would he release something like that now, Hans I mean, that that was released uh, without anybody knowing it beforehand on a very dark and cold March night, as far as I remember. And um, I was surprised at first. And then I thought, oh, there must be an agenda mm. behind this. Because that song at that time, without any prior information you know that there must be a plan behind this so then later we learned that some of the musicians said yeah they were in the studio in wintertime and it, it was like a some people knew that something was going on and i am convinced that this uh, this track and the whole album was released ahead of time ahead of the scheduled release date i think they wanted to do that later but some sort of rush release yeah i think so and and also like as from a market perspective that was genius because that that fell into a time when nobody was releasing music and i think at one point maybe in february or in march they said okay let's go ahead with this let's 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 do this now because this is a, a time slot we can use and they and they did 
Well, it's actually astonishing how relevant a lot of the material was for what yeah. was going on exactly around that time, March and April. Dylan has always talked about also racial injustice in the United mm-hmm. States, and he's sung about it, and he's also worked on it outside of his music. And then when the you know the George Floyd uh, murder um, mm-hmm. on through the um, the police occurred and the protests were happening around that time. And, and Dylan almost seemed to be providing the soundtrack for this in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you could also take earlier albums of his yeah. that were already kind of talking about, you know, yeah. he's been, he's had his finger on that pulse for a very long time. And if you look at what's going on in the United States today, nothing is really new. It's just kind of a more mm-hmm. acute and worse and more horrible version of a lot of problems that that country has been dealing with for a long time. So the fact that the music seems so apt and so timely um, speaks to Dylan's very long-standing obsession um, with with these kind of questions and, and his ability to yeah, to I mean, uh, Hank was saying before that Dylan doesn't have an obligation, you know, to be politically correct or anything like that. But he certainly has always used his his talent as a wordsmith to mm-hmm. comment on American culture in, in this sort of oblique way and sometimes in an almost absurd way. And sometimes there's this kind of Marx Brothers, you know, Dadaistic aspect to it. But uh, it was really kind of astonishing how how fresh and how timely uh, the album sounded when, when you know, listening to it in, in March and April, all but these the, things were going but on. But, you know, the, the, the history thing, that, that's been going on for a long time now. And this c- coming from a man who said... Sure, since the I, beginning. I just re- read that recently. Um, th- he, w- he was saying at, at one point that he was born 1941, the year Pearl Harbor was bombed, and he's, that he's been living in a world of darkness ever since, which is... A provocation in itself but you know th- th- that's a very strong thing and if you this time it all it goes back thousands of years it's like the whole the whole history of mankind he sings that in in one song i can see the whole history of the human race and 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 i think at his age and with with a with a mind that is so so fresh and so alert it it must be it must be awesome to 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 do this with all this knowledge and i th- that, that's to me something that characterizes this album there's so much information in it and it's done very lightly mm. uh, well at least that's the impression i get fr- from listening to it I, I i think it's a lot of hard work mm. but it's a, but, it's but, a, a lot of hard but, work but to understand really like what's a, going like on like a light touch yeah mm. yeah yeah, but there's still a lot to to sink your teeth into this material to mm-hmm. understand the quotations, uh, the allusions to lots of cultural events, political events, social events. It's it's just chock full of stuff like that. Starting with the 17 minute track called "Murder Most Foul," naturally um, Shakespeare. That's where he borrows the title, and that leads us to the first track on the album, which is called "I Contain Multitudes." Well, we agreed before that we all contain multitudes, but Bob Dylan seems to contain a bit more than that. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just, um, it's just also full of people that he he uh, continually quotes. There's, um, it's a lot of name dropping. Uh, also in this first track, Marilyn Monroe, Bob Wills, Buster Keaton, Beatles, Shakespeare, Chopin, Beethoven, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, uh, Nacking Cole. I could go on for hours. I mean, it's all there. You can listen to the track and discover it yourself. What did you make of that? Um, did you understand all of the illusions that he had in there? Or there's a lot of information that you'd have to look up, basically. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I knew, um, I would say almost all of the names. I knew who the people were. I was surprised sometimes at the way that he put them together. Like there's this line where he talks about Anne Frank, Indiana Jones and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and that, that seemed to it me rhymes. like it rhymes, it rhymes, but it's sort of, you that's, those are the moments where I had to ask myself, like, is this genius or is this ridiculous? You know, or is like, it Dada, as you said before, or, or is it both? Well, or is it kind of this weird doggerel where he's just putting things together because they rhyme without thinking that much about what what he's trying to say? On the other hand, Dylan always had the gift of saying these absurd things that people would then think about and find it to be very deep. I mean, it is very deep. You know, Anne Frank, who died in the Holocaust, and Indiana Jones, which is also a story related to Nazis, but it's also adventure. And then you have the Rolling Stones. Like, then you start thinking, like, you know, the same way in the beginning, like when he would say, you know... I don't know, the sun isn't yellow, it's chicken, or the pump don't work because the vandals took the handle. You know, he always had that ability mm -hmm. to, to be sort of a, very flippant mm -hmm. um, with almost kind of cringy rhymes, but then at the same time that there would be this sort of depth to it. Um, I wondered, though, in terms of him doing this, you know, almost kind of like throwing all of American pop cultural history and musical history into a blender and, and turning it, As I was listening to it, I, I wondered how young people would feel or younger people who maybe aren't as familiar. I mean, I'm also someone who, you know, I, I'm, I'm a cultural studies person. So I also am familiar with some of the names of people who were before my time, you know, like Nat King Cole is more like my grandmother's generation, but I, mm -hmm. I know what it is. And I, I, I kind of wondered for, for a young person who would just sort of come across this on the internet and start listening to this whole litany of names, would they go and, and Google it and make discoveries or, or would they just kind of slide away or would it not matter, um, you know, to know all the details of the precision of all, you know, what exactly he means by, you know, putting Anne Frank Uh, Indiana Jones and, and Mick mm. Jagger, you know, in a convertible together, you know, kind mm. of. But I, I, I did talk to people who are of a different generation and they really had a bit of trouble with that. They, they said it was, it was enervating after a while, you know, like uh, even if you work in the cultural field, uh, after the third stanza, you start thinking, well, um, what's this all about? You know, and I have to look up every second line to understand what this is all about. And maybe... Uh, just in case you haven't studied American cultural history, then you're a bit lost as well. It's, it, it's a lot to ask and it's a lot of Google work, I think. Good, good, good. I like that. I like that because it's, it's in a way, it's, it's a provocation in a, in, a, in, a, in a time when I think I'm 54 and, and I always been interested in history. And at, at one point I, I started to learn that you know the like when Dylan quotes Marcus Aurelius or or, or like Greek philosophy go and then goes to the Second World War and to Martin Luther King and Presley and blah 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 the whole thing, it's um it's it's really if it interests you to connect the dots on a on a timeline on a map, that's I I don't think you can get seriously into art. This is a kind of a bold statement if you don't know where you come from or where you're where what nurtures you where that where that comes from I, I don't think it's it's possible to get into any kind of depth there so that that's 
that's why I like it because all these references it also it made me look up stuff it made me look up a lot of stuff and and the first time in my life I read about the muses and and whatnot and it's really I think it's fan- it's fantastic and and if if this doesn't grab you in in any way and you know it doesn't have to and then just leave it be you don't have to listen to it you can still dance to half of the record yeah and it's also well, it's also what? poetry isn't it i mean uh, yeah and you you don't need to ex- understand or explain everything away in poetry or do you no, no i mean the whole intellectuality of it that's not that to me that's not in the front it really isn't you know it, it can this record can do things with you w- w- without you understanding but it can do so much more so that's that's also one of the things that I like. Well, I think the name dropping aspect of it is interesting because it fits into Dylan's method in a, in a number of other ways. Because um, like if you think about, I know a song like American Pie by Don McLean, you know, the day the music died, mm. which was the you know, day that Buddy Holly died in a, in a plane crash. And what Don McLean does is he alludes to all these figures without saying them by name. So he'll say, you know, helter skelter in the summer swelter, or he'll talk about the jester. And you have to really be very familiar with the music and the culture of that time to get, you know, the allusions. And Dylan is just sitting there, you know, just naming the names and making rhymes out of them. And it almost, it's almost like a hip hop method, actually. Yeah, exactly. The way that hip hop artists do this kind of calling out and mentioning of names and you reference, you know, a whole other universe by, you know, bringing a name into it. And, you know, in hip hop, they'll do it also with products. You know, they'll be singing, you know, they'll be mentioning Mm -hmm. like... The sneakers or so, yeah. Hennessy Whiskey or, you know, Monica Lewinsky or, you know, kind of names... And and so I think this is something that Dylan has started doing more. He wasn't always such a name dropper the way he's he's become um, over his last couple of albums. And I I would guess that he's this is something where he's been sort of influenced by by the culture, by hip hop and those those musical forms. But if you if you really look into it, you see that he's doing this name dropping on a whole bunch of levels all at the same time because he's also um, musically quoting from all kinds of other work in a way that's also almost similar to the hip-hop practice of sampling, except that he's not sampling. He's not taking little recorded bits and putting them in, but he's sort of dropping it in you know, into the music. There's melodies of, you know, different kinds of songs. He's even quoting some of his own songs. Um, I There's, in, when he sings my own version of you, there's the chord changes um, that a lot of people know from the Portishead song, Glory Box, but Portishead actually took it from Isaac Hayes, Ike's rap number two. And mm. so there's a lot of, you can really, you know, how far you want to go down the rabbit hole of, of following these references, which sort of go back to this giant appreciation you know that that Dylan uh, practices of of, uh, of 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 his you know his whole cultural catalog. Yeah, which brings us to the folk tradition because I mean the, everything going from 1910 to to 1940 that's always been the thing with black and white music and and there's cross reference and, and and everything and he hmm. grew up with this not with popular music at that time but especially if you go to to blues and, and 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 early country and western recordings of the 30s and 40s they did that all the time mm-hmm. and and the third man records a couple of years back made a thing where they uh like brought old recording techniques back and they invited new young hip hop acts and together with like well-known people from popular culture and 
it's, you see this beautiful connection to it that like a 22-year-old gangster rapper of, of, of Brooklyn, what he does is, is basically could, could have been on a record in 1932. Mm. It's, 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 it's the same thing. And Dylan's been musically, Dylan's been doing this now for more than two decades. He's been like that, that, that whole universe comes together. And I agree with you, Marcy, that he does it with the name dropping now. I find, I find that really enjoyable because it's like, I, I think he likes it too. And, and it's like a thing for him to do that maybe he has to restrain himself <laughs> at some point to to stop doing that but it's it's really I, I i love it well you know he had his radio show for a number of yeah. years where he was you know kind of yeah. a dj where he, he his whole musical universe you know he could kind yeah. of like present it on his own podcast and sometimes i feel like ever since he did that it, mm -hmm. it really influenced um the music that he's made since then so that there's Absolutely. times during this record where he talks about he references wolfman jack who was a, mm -hmm. a famous mm -hmm. dj of the times you know 60s 70s um i remember him sort of vaguely as a child he was still around and you know wolfman jack playing me a song but actually it's dylan mm -hmm. who's the DJ DJ who's kind of recycling and bringing together, you know, American American musical history. Since we're talking about the music, also um, we should we should place that front of stage for a second. I had the feeling that a lot of what we got in the last couple of albums over the past two or three decades, almost, um, was like him placing himself in a line of people who further the American folk tradition. This is at least the idea that I got. He's placing himself directly in that that line of, of people who made that music. And with the new one, I don't have that feeling so much, but he drops the names all over the place. Did you get that feeling too, Hank? Um, no, not really, because that, what I said in the beginning, that it's like a culmination thing for him. I think that starting with Love and Theft and then g going on from there, he experimented with all these styles. The musician the musician said that he's been showing up to sound checks for years with really old old songs, like some of them standard, some of them un un unknown, and they played these songs mm -hmm. to get to get into to the mood for this music. And and I think that's the method there. I, this is a pure um I think it's just a love for this music. Whether he grew up with it or not doesn't really matter. But, but the, the history—I don't think he places himself in historical context. It's, mm. it's just really what, what what gets out of him musically. Also, I mean, there's stuff on the new record that's not really original. False Prophet, the the, the second song on the record, is a, 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 a an exact copy of the arrangement of. Billy the Kid Emerson, mm. uh, one of the early uh, Black Sun Records artists, and it's really a precise recreation of that thing, which which is fine with me. And he did that with all the stuff. There's Floater on on uh, Love and Theft. There's Beyond the Horizon, which is a Bing Crosby song. It's exactly the same thing. And that aspect of like stealing in quotes mm -hmm. that that's the folk tradition and that's well the the weirdest the weirdest example for me though is um in i've made up my I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Yeah. He references the Barcarolle from Offenbach, yeah. which is opera. You know, it's sort of light yeah. opera. Um, and and 
when that came on, uh, when I listened to the album the first time, I was kind of like, wait a minute, what, yeah. like, what, what kind of yeah. interlude is this, you know? And, and, um, yeah, Love and Theft. I mean, that was the title of a, of a, you know, a, a, a previous album, right? It's From good 2000. Motto, too. That was his mm-hmm. album that came out on September 11th, 2001. Yeah. It took time for people to pay attention to it because of the whole Twin Towers, um, attack but it's love and theft is also the title of a, of a book by eric lott which is american cultural studies looking at the way that um white people appropriated black musical traditions and black performance traditions and the whole idea of blackface and and mm. and um and, and cultural appropriation so by dylan taking the title of that book and sort of copying it and quoting it sort of only 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 brings that further but in terms of his connecting with the folk tradition there's there's another aspect that i'd I'd like to bring into it, um, which is that Dylan for a long time has been in this mood of, you know, the end times and the apocalypse. And mm-hmm. it's maybe also connected to his conversion to Christianity, which he doesn't talk about that much anymore, but he never, you know, repudiated. But this whole idea of kind of like a second coming, end times, horsemen of the apocalypse, end of the world, and and singing about like this mood of impending disaster and doom has been very present. Um, in his album since the 2000s Um, and you know talking about like he you know the water rising and the floods going to come and all these disasters that accompany the end of the world which a lot of them you know um, pestilence and epidemics and things that are that are happening now when we look around and I think on that level, he sort of sounds, I mean, he sounds like an Old Testament prophet, but he also sounds like some of the singers of the 20s and 30s, you know, exactly. like Robert Johnson going to the crossroads and meeting mm. the devil and, and and things like that. And it's interesting to me that in an album that's also very playful and where he's referencing all, you know, Elvis and Anne Frank and all this stuff, that he also has stuck to this kind of disturbing vision of of uh, of, of the end times. That's a really interesting point because I always thought, um, looking back at his early albums, you already get the sense of somebody being really old. I mean, he was a young guy when he wrote A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. He was a really young man. He was 23 years old when he wrote uh, one of my favorite tracks, It's All Right, Ma. Yeah. Uh, I'm only sighing, bleeding, whatever it is. Um, And they're all apocalyptic to the max, really. I mean, for such a young guy to be so negative really about the future of the world it was kind of surprising to me when when you think back on it you know but yeah but mostly the uh, i mean a lot of these songs when when we read chronicles we we learned what marcy mentioned that he, he like he went to the libraries and instead of reading newspapers of the day he read like newspapers that were 100 years old and he also says there isn't that much of a difference mm. Between these two, I mean, there's on on German television for a while they repeated at midnight. They they repeated daily news from 30 years back, like every every night. And I I I zapped into this by chance, and I and I thought, well, oh, oh look, they they did the old decor, and they talked about the Middle East and blah 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 and everything. And I, and, I, and I got it. It was 1974 or something. But I thought. That could be, if you change the picture, that could be the, a, a news edition of today. How, mm. how little has changed. I mean, how that little? goes back to to another famous, you know, legendary American literary figure, which is Thoreau, right? Uh, Henry yeah. David Thoreau, who said all news is gossip and, you know, it's not worth <laughs> paying attention to. But I, I'd like to also mention, going back to the title, I Contain Multitudes, because it's a reference, it's a reference to Walt Whitman. And I think Whitman is sort of stands on the other side from the folk tradition that's, you know, predicting gloom and doom and only, 
you know, talking about injustice and so on. Whitman is much more of a sunny figure. And, you know, the line from his poem, uh, Song of Myself, is do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And um, Leaves of Grass was published in 1855. So this is also something from a long time ago, which um, has a very fresh effect when you look at it today. And Whitman is sort of singing the praises of, mm-hmm. of America, of this new country with new potential and uh, the potential to liberate people and um, the potential to kind of live in a more sensuous way in harmony with nature and to overthrow certain kinds of shackles and and. He was also a very controversial figure in his time. He was sort of, you know, we talk about cancel culture. Whitman was, they tried to cancel him, you know, all the time because he sang about the body and about sex and he was homosexual in a time like way before um, people considered that even like a, a, a concept. And and I think it's it's interesting that Dylan has kind of hooked himself now also onto onto Whitman and onto this idea of, you know, praising nature and... Um, trying to look at a more positive vision of human potential and of, of um, you know, a, a vision of justice and equality and joy, um, which is very untypical for him, actually. Yeah, but he's done that before, right? I mean, in the 70s, there were, the, there were these, uh, like, let's go live in the mountains and, and uh, get fresh trout from the stream songs, you know? So that's, uh, I think, the romanticism behind this, which... The American mm. aspect of this romanticism is is something of its own. Euro, Europeans do that differently. So so that that whole like walking around like like a, a Mormon in the 19th century thing. That's uh, he's done that before. Back in the 60s, when everybody looked used to look like yeah. uh, hipsters do nowadays. Um, just look wise. Exactly. Um, did anybody see uh, Scorsese's um, film about the Rolling Thunder Review, 1975? Uh, the interview extract where you get where you get Dylan talking about poetry and about the importance that it has, um, like the songwriters, and he starts quoting different titles, and amongst them is "I Contain Multitudes." Um, I would just like to ask you one thing before we slowly start sliding towards the end. Um, I had the feeling while also listening to it again and trying to assemble those those multitudes of allusions and quotes as that that we mentioned just before, is that I had the feeling that somehow, in a certain way, he was still in a, in a sort of a, a conversation with Nobel Prize Committee, uh, with his critics, with his fans who were eager to explain everything, and the answer would be, I could say multitudes and don't, don't try to pigeonhole me. What do you make of that? Well, he's been saying that since like 1965, you know, I mean, that was always his thing that he didn't want to be the voice of a generation and he didn't want people to analyze him too closely. And, you know, don't put your labels on me, whatever you think I am, I'm not. And all these, you know, like lines that he gave in in the press conferences. And I think that's always been a huge source of irritation for him is the way that um, the media or certain aspect of public life and fame and celebrity has has kind of dogged him over time. And I mean, the Nobel Prize thing, I think we, we talked about it once in a show that we did in German a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, the no, it's a bit weird to me. I mean, that you know, they also, they gave Barack Obama the Nobel Peace Prize at the beginning of his term. And then after that, he went and like, you know, sent drone strikes and did all kinds of things to well, have not he deserved it, it. the prize, you know. He had it already, yeah. And I mean, so sometimes their choices are also a bit like hard to understand. 
Um, and the idea that they would start giving, you know, popular songwriters the Nobel Prize for Literature is actually fabulous. The why they started with Dylan rather than someone else, I think, is a, an open question. But it's typical of Dylan that he would be sort of annoyed that they gave him this prize and that he would be, you know, like be so grumpy about it. Um, yeah. yeah, well, you know, with everything we learned about the, the Nobel Prize uh, uh, committee and also the foundation is the fortune a guy made by inventing uh, dynamite. Dynamite, so, sure. So, yeah. so, you know. and, and Well, that explains a lot about what philanthropy is and what yeah, its function yeah, is. Yeah, but, you know, the, the whole importance of this is it's just a room full of, of uh, Swedish academics, you know, and you can, I mean... There's, there are plenty of reasons to, to discuss this or dispute this. So his reaction to, his, to, to this, which wasn't a reaction at all, and, 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 and then six months later he delivered a speech like copied from Cliff Notes. So, you know, I, I don't think he pays too much attention to it. Also, saying that, I think he's, he's a, a very proud man, and a very and sometimes vain, you know. Mm. So, so he, he really, I think he he reads more of his critics and and w what's being said of him. He's fully aware of this, and and that's also I think some of the driving force behind some of the lyrics on, on this album. Well, I thought it was it was just I I couldn't stop laughing out loud when I heard the song uh, "Mother of Muses," where he asked for the hand of Calliope who happens to be the muse of eloquence and poetry and this from the guy who won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I thought it was a magnificent little joke. Um, I would just like to, as a last question, I would like to ask you, Hank, um, if you don't mind, Marcy, I'll, I'll just give the last question uh, to, to Hank because it's really a musical question. Uh, we've gotten used to every Bob Dylan album over the past decades, starting actually from the beginning, that there are loads of outtakes, different versions of the same songs over and mm -hmm. over again. And sometimes that bootleg series um, lets you discover that some of the versions that were not released were actually nicer, um, more incisive than the ones that he released. But do you expect anything like that from this new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, that will get another collection of outtakes from that? I, d I don't think we will, because I, I think everything here is really... I think before they recorded this, they, a lot of work has gone into this, a lot. Because if you hear the way it's played and it's arranged and also the way it's recorded, I think most of this is live. And these are just great, great performances. And this is a very, very well rehearsed band. And every aspect of, of recording this was done, it was meticulously done. So... I, I don't think there's too much. The, 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 there's a, I've got a record a, a, a fan gave me uh, of one song Dylan recorded for a, for a soundtrack like 15 years ago. It's called Tell Old Bill. And it's, I, don't, I, I haven't seen the movie. And what you hear on, this, on, on these outtakes are like 12 versions of the song, how they progress to the version that, that was eventually released. And you hear the whole process of him in the studio. People kept saying for decades, he doesn't know a thing about producing and anything. And there's a man in charge, you hear his microphone all the time, and he changes keys and tempos and, and, and stuff. And it's really the whole focus is coming along so beautifully. And the second to last version you hear, almost there, almost, almost there. And then the last version, the of official release, is just a 
stroke of genius. And I think the same happened here with this with this record. They knew exactly what they were doing. So I would doubt it. I would love to hear more of it, but I would doubt that there will be any outtakes. This was the Kulturstammtisch in English for the first time. Our subject was Bob Dylan's newest album called Rough and Rowdy Ways. Uh, my guests uh, in this show were Marcy Goldberg, a film historian and cultural critic from Canada who lives in Switzerland, and Hang Schitzel, recording artist, guitar player, singer, songwriter, based in Switzerland and from Switzerland. My name is Eric Facon. <laughs>